0: Well, Brexit isn't quite done, and the oven-ready deal that Boris Johnson talked about, well, it has one or two difficulties. Uh, Some parts of it weren't fully cooked. We've got issues to sort out in terms of fishing, but perhaps the biggest and most immediate one is over Northern Ireland. Now, I can see you at home saying the Northern Ireland Protocol. Isn't that all a bit dry and a bit dusty and a bit legalistic? Does it really matter? Well, the answer is... Yes, it does actually matter because a part of the United Kingdom has effectively been annexed. A part of the United Kingdom is living under a different set of laws over which it has no say, under a different court. And it's become all but impossible for many, many goods to go from one part of the United Kingdom, namely England, Wales or Scotland, over to Northern Ireland. Huge problems uh, with plants, food, bangers, of course, the classic row we always seem to have with Europe, back to the days of Jim Hacker and, yes, Prime Minister. Um, so, yes, it does really matter. And it matters because, for all the talk of preventing a hard border and all the threats that we had from the Verhofstadt and, indeed, the Barniers saying that if the border was a hard border, the Irish nationalists might start terrorism again... Well, far from that, actually, it's the unionist community that are genuinely upset, genuinely angry, indeed furious, that Northern Ireland has been annexed and is not fully part of the Brexit deal. And it really matters because all of this now threatens the Belfast Agreement, and it's a real serious worry. I think the use of the hard border by Monsieur Barnier from the very beginning was always intended to be His poison pill. He's a clever so-and-so, is Barnier. And Mrs May, surrounded by her own bureaucrats, none of whom believed in Brexit, none of whom wanted us to have a proper Brexit, yep, Mrs May swallowed it whole. And the effect of it could well have been that the whole of the United Kingdom could have been left stuck inside the customs union and, indeed, inside the single market. Now, one person who did recognise this back in 2018 was the the at-the-time Foreign Secretary who took the unprecedented step of going over to Northern Ireland to speak to the DUP annual conference. Yes, this was Boris Johnson in 2018.
1: If we wanted to do... If we genuinely wanted to do free trade deals, if we wanted to cut tariffs on, as we should, by the way, on food from... Uh, to make food cheaper for our people from sub-Saharan Africa or whatever, we wanted to vary our regulation then we would have to leave Northern Ireland behind as an economic semi-colony of the EU and we would be damaging the fabric of the Union with regulatory checks and even customs controls between Great Britain and Northern Ireland on top of those extra regulatory checks down the Irish Sea that are already envisaged in the withdrawal agreement. Now, I have to tell you, no British
0: Conservative government could or should sign up to any such arrangement. No British Conservative government could or should ever sign up to such an arrangement. And yet, that is exactly what he did. Now, he threw Northern Ireland completely under the bus. Those who defend him over this say that... He was dealt a very, very bad hand of cards by Mrs May. And some say, including Dominic Cummings, whether you believe him or not, but Cummings actually says that when it came to the final Brexit deal, that Boris Johnson didn't really have any idea what was actually in it. So, is he a liar? Isn't he? I don't know. That's for you to make your own minds up. But... The outcome has been far worse than any of us predicted. I, at the time, thought it was truly dreadful for Northern Ireland. And I remember on the 31st of January 2020, as 100,000 of us gathered in Parliament Square to celebrate the fact that finally we were leaving, uh, there were none of our friends from Northern Ireland there because for them it wasn't a moment of celebration. The outcome's been dreadful. Uh, The sheer levels of bureaucracy for trade have been dreadful. Tensions have been rising. And in response to this, Lord Frost, who I have to say, uh, of all the people involved in the whole Brexit process on behalf of the British government, has been by far the best. Frost, in the last few days, has threatened to tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol unless some basic demands are met. He wants a huge reduction in bureaucracy, sensibly, and he does not want... The European Court of Justice, a European Union court based in Brussels, to continue to have jurisdiction. Well, the response to all of this has come today from the European Commission Vice President, Maros Sefcovic, and he responded just a few minutes ago. So let's have a look at what he had to say. We will then go to a senior figure in the DUP and we'll ask ourselves a question. Is the response that we've got today from the European Commission sufficient? Would it now be a truce, or are we headed for a trade war? Let's have a look at what Šefčovič had to say one hour ago.
2: Ultimately, our number one priority remains to ensure that the hard-earned gains of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, am talking about peace and stability, are protected while avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland, and maintaining the integrity of the EU single market. You may recall that uh, during my visit uh, uh, to Belfast in September, I said that for my part, I would do whatever it takes to guarantee the uninterrupted long-term supply of medicines from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And indeed, we have completely turned our rules upside down and inside out to find a solid solution to an outstanding challenge. That involves the EU changing its own rules on medicines. In practice, British wholesalers of medicines will be able to continue supplying Northern Ireland from their current location in Great Britain. They will not need to relocate infrastructure, including testing facilities or regulatory functions to Northern Ireland or the European Union, we invested uh, so much effort in uh, negotiating the withdrawal agreement, uh, protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland, the TCA, and I think we looked uh, at the issue in particular uh, on uh, uh, the uh, island of Ireland with all aspects, and we've been. Uh, and you've been following this very closely, so I do not have to to repeat to you all the efforts, all the attempts and all the angles which have been tested here. In the end, uh, uh, we found uh, uh, the solution which we both uh, uh, agreed is the best one for the future. Uh, All this uh, was approved, ratified uh, by uh, UK, so it became very clearly the, the instrument of the international law. And uh, we did it uh, because I believe that we share the same goals. We we share the goal of uh, prosperity, uh, of stability, of peace uh, on the island of Ireland. I believe we also share the goal of no hard border uh, between Ireland and uh, Northern Ireland. And therefore we went for really unprecedented uh, way uh, uh, where the EU was actually uh, delegated uh, the the control of our external border to our UK partners. It's indeed unprecedented as many of the things which I presented uh, to you today. So I really hope that we share the same goal of peace, stability and prosperity on the island of Ireland. And I hope that we uh, also share the same goal to make sure that uh, the businesses and people of uh, Northern Ireland would benefit and I would add enormously uh, from the dual uh, market uh, access uh, uh, and uh, that's something which would bring uh, enormous uh, uh, pluses uh, for the Northern Ireland economy. And uh, I think that uh, from this logic it's uh, very clear that uh, we cannot have access uh, to the uh, single market uh, uh, without the, the supervision of the European Court of Justice.
0: Well, I have to say, those unelected bureaucrats in Brussels are not exactly laugh-a-minute and fun and exciting, are they? However, it was an important speech, and the EU have made some significant concessions. The question is, have they given enough? Well, joining me now is the Chief Whip of the Democratic Unionist Party, Sammy Wilson, MP. Sammy, good evening. You've heard... Good evening, Mike. Good evening. You've heard what Mr Sefikovic had to say. He's talking about... Obviously medicines, he was very specific about, the medicines could move back and forth freely and that was something that the Commission President threatened to interfere with, if you remember, earlier this year. But they're also talking about an 80% reduction in the amount of bureaucracy and checks that take place, trade coming from the mainland to Northern Ireland. Is that enough, Sammy Wilson, to satisfy you to think that the Northern Ireland Protocol is workable in this form?
3: Nigel, when you strip away all of the rhetoric which we have heard today from the EU, it is quite clear that as far as they're concerned, Northern Ireland will still remain part of the EU single market, even though the United Kingdom voted to leave. Secondly, the European Court of Justice and will administer European laws which will be imposed in Northern Ireland without any say by either the British government or the Northern Ireland Assembly. And thirdly, that some of the concessions which have been made on trade um, are really, they're they're really very minor compared to what is happening at the moment. Because don't forget, 20% of all EU border checks at present occur between GB and Northern Ireland. That's more than
0: happens in Rotterdam. It's more than happens on the whole of the Eastern Boundary. Yeah, but Sammy, but, Sammy, that's what's going to change. I mean, the point he's making, no. and, and, and hmm. you're quite right, that you know when it came to the European Court of Justice, he was asked a question about that, and he hasn't given an inch, from what I can see, because I know that Lord Frost was looking for an independent arbitration panel. That clearly is not being offered. But on the number of checks, he is talking about an 80% reduction in them. Well, he said up to an 80%
3: reduction. And, of course, that will depend upon the goods. There will also still be checks uh, checks on paperwork, which he says will be reduced by 50%. Well, when you consider that Marks & Spencer are saying that for a lorry load of goods going to a Marks & Spencer store, there are about 700 pages Mm. of uh, papers which are required. He's going to reduce this now to 350. It's still a major barrier to trade, and one of the reasons why many firms in GB have decided not to trade in Northern Ireland is simply because, not even the physical checks, the pure level of paperwork, which is now required
0: to um, get goods well, into Northern Ireland. Well, Sammy, I that, you know I fully understand that's been the case. He says there is an up to 80% reduction, we'll see. But on the first point you made, I mean, this is what Boris Johnson signed up to. Boris Johnson signed up to Northern Ireland being part effectively continuing to be part of the single market. So maybe, Sammy Wilson, maybe your upset and anger shouldn't be at Mr Sefcovich. After all, all he's doing is trying to amend slightly a treaty that the British government entered into and that Parliament passed. Maybe your anger ought to be directed at the man who came to your annual conference in 2018 as Foreign Secretary and told you that a Conservative government would never do this. Maybe Boris Johnson is the villain in your eyes, not the European Commission.
3: And that's why all of our pressure has been on the government at Westminster to make the changes. We know that the EU, having got this concession from the UK government, is not going to give it up easily. Mm -hmm. So therefore the pressure has to be on the people who actually signed the deal in the first place, and I'm encouraged that Lord Frost in his command paper has recognised that there are three issues that need to be dealt with. First of all, the whole issue of EU laws applying to Northern Ireland. Yeah. Secondly, the European Court adjudicating on those laws. And thirdly, the checks which result from those laws. Because don't forget, Nigel, the reason why we have checks on goods coming into Northern Ireland from GB is that Northern Ireland laws are now different and regulations are now different from those which pertain in the rest of the United Kingdom because of the deal which has been done. And yes, the Prime Minister does have a responsibility because he signed the uh, the agreement. He, assigned, he signed it against the advice uh, that we uh, gave. He signed it against the way he had voted himself many times, three times in the House of Commons when he voted down Theresa May's deal. Um, but His argument, of course, is that, well, the withdrawal agreement itself allowed for flexibility. It allowed for Article 16, where the government could act unilaterally in certain circumstances. And the political declaration talked about alternative arrangements. And my view is that there are alternative arrangements, mutual recognition of each other's regulations and imposed by each, both the European Union and the, um, the UK when people and firms trade across the border. That's the way forward. And don't forget, Nigel, this isn't all that difficult to do. Only about 5% of firms in Northern Ireland actually sell into the Republic. 4% of our sales go into
0: the EU. So there's not a massive amount of... No, it can be, done. Ch- it, it, it can be me, done. I mean I get that. I get it can be done. Uh, I mean, look, I mean, the truth of it is, Boris Johnson, You know, there was no real criticism coming from the big UK press, London-based. Uh, we'd been through years of agony with Brexit the message people wanted to hear is, this is it, it's the oven-ready deal. I think he knew what he was doing. I think he threw you under the bus but thought we could sort it out another day. Given that this appears to be as far as the Commission are prepared to go, and I fully understand your points about mutual recognition and all the rest of it, which is, how, after all, how trade takes place across much of the world, with or without formal trade agreements. Has the time come... To trigger article 16 and to scrap the protocol is that what we should be doing
3: we've always argued that's the only answer i mean the protocol is poison in the northern ireland political system the northern ireland assembly is very likely to collapse in the next three or four months as a result of the protocol and you know if you think of it if you're a, a, an elected representative in northern ireland why and how could you justify sitting in an assembly where every week EU laws are imposed in Northern Ireland. They're not even referred to the Assembly. You're elected as a lawmaker and somebody else outside your outside your country brings bring, introduces laws well, doesn't even take out I mean, them. Isn't that, and isn't that why we voted
0: Brexit? That's
3: why we that's voted Brexit. Why we voted to get out. I remember many, many rallies when you and I spoke at rallies, and that was the whole point. We yeah. want responsibility and decision-making back in our own hands now it's happened for the rest of the united kingdom it hasn't happened for northern ireland and my argument to many politicians in northern ireland even those who, who voted remain if you have any dignity for goodness sake you're elected to do a job yeah. don't let somebody else do that job for you and then if you don't obey their rules a foreign court comes in and stamps all over you and imposes sanctions I mean that's not democracy, and that's why I, I don't believe that there's an alternative to tinkering with this the Northern Iron Protocol. It has to go. And okay. you know, if you read the if you read the command paper, that's exactly what the government is saying in the command paper. Because if what they
0: recommend in the command paper was introduced, then there wouldn't be a Northern Iron Protocol. No, Sammy Wilson, thank you very much indeed for joining us here tonight and responding to Mr. Šefković from the European Commission. And I have to say that Brussels have given a bit. Of that, there's no question. There has been some compromise. We will be able to sell British bangers from England into Northern Ireland. Whoopee-woo. But the fact is, uh, this is a very, very bad deal. Uh, it is the beginning of the breakup of the Union. It isn't good enough. The government needs to do a lot more and get tough. But will they? Does Northern Ireland matter enough to Boris Johnson for him to be able to do it? <laughs> Well, we know all about, don't we, a shortage of lorry drivers and increasingly a shortage of goods. But first, let's get some of your reaction to what has happened with Mr Sefcovic responding to Lord Frost on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Richard says, if Boris did not make us leave... We would still be inside, still negotiating. Yes, Richard, rather like a fish trapped in a net. That's, that was how strong we were negotiating from within. Camilla says the EU has no interest in giving up their powers over Northern Ireland. I think that's right, and I think Sefcovic tried it to sound emollient today, but in effect, it's the power of the court that really, really matters. Chris says the current EU offer is not enough there is a crucial point of principle. Well, there really is a crucial point of principle. Robert says, the deal needs more than a little bit. Boris and Frost need to fix it now. Well, I agree with all of that, but I don't think they're going to because I just don't think that Boris Johnson, Northern Ireland or even the union, frankly, are big enough priorities, but I really hope to be proved wrong. So crisis, shortage of goods. Could Christmas be cancelled? And indeed, one of the major shippers, Corrie Brothers Shipping Agency, has urged people to buy their goods for Christmas in a timely fashion. That means get your order in now or the kids don't get a present from Father Christmas. That's effectively what you're being told. And let's have a look at the situation in Felix Dave yesterday. I mean, it really was pretty grim. The place absolutely ramful... Of containers jam-full. Uh, and it got to the point where Maersk, the world's biggest container shipping line, had to re ships because the port of Felixstowe was full because there weren't enough HGV drivers to take the containers away. So there is a major, major problem here. But by the way, for those of you who think, "Ah, oh, well of course that's just because of Brexit, the same is happening in Los Angeles. There, too, they've got a problem. And this is Long Beach, out there in California. And they've got... I think, Have a look at that picture. Over 80 container vessels just there in the bay off the west coast of California, and there's no room for them to dock. So this is nothing to do with Brexit. Sorry to disappoint you, Lord Adonis or John Berker, wherever you are. This is a global problem. And, of course, to a large extent, what's happened is a massive increase in the money supply, a massive increase in the amount of money in circulation as a result of what governments have done to deal with the pandemic, chasing the same amount of goods. And that leads to inflation and it leads to shortages. And in particular, when it comes to HGV drivers, well, here's a group of people who have been used and abused by employers for far too long. And that's why we have a shortage. Just how bad is this Can it be rectified, uh, or are we heading for a Scrooge-like Christmas? Well, I'm joined now by Chris Proctor, traffic manager, and, of course, himself, an HGV driver. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Um, You know, you've got the guys on the ground. I mean, the things that Felix dove, it's almost extraordinary, isn't it, that ships were redirected from Britain's biggest container port yesterday. Mm, It is, but...
4: You know, I'm not going to sit here and we're going to blame this on Brexit or we're going to blame this on the shortage of HGV drivers. Because the last time I checked in California, there wasn't a shortage of HGV drivers over there either. This is purely a case of... I did a little bit of snooping around today. My my nephew works at Import-Export, so I made a quick phone call to him and asked him what exactly is going on at Felixstowe. The problem is in all the docks and, and the ports around the UK is there was that much PPE stuff ordered. Okay, during COVID, that there is now a massive backlog of it in containers that is clogging up the key. The problem is the ships cannot empty because the keys are full of stuff that nobody wants anymore. It's not getting moved off the key because the priority is going to the other stuff that is going out on the uh-huh. trucks that we do have into the stores. Is there going to be a Christmas at crisis? A crisis at Christmas? No, there isn't. Okay? And I know the press would love to jump all over this like they did the fuel crisis and go, oh my God, that's it, there's no fuel. When we all knew that was a total lie. There wasn't as short as a shortage of fuel, but it caused havoc. Yet again, this is, this is rubbish politics starting malicious routes and
0: utilising the press to do it. And it's, it's, it's just a total lie. I mean, Chris, I get it. There was a panic over fuel that was somewhat unnecessary. I understand that. But when it comes to HGV drivers and the government's big call out, for, you know, drivers, overseas drivers, to register. So far, 20 have been processed. Um, It's not really great progress. Do you know yourself whether anything is really being done at the DVLA to deal with the HGV backlog? They are slowly starting the catch-up
4: process, yes. Uh, but there's still a long way to go. But Nigel, it's interesting you should should highlight that point of only 20 have applied. That's simply because they're offering them a three-month contract, okay? If you're moving, it's like you're not gonna move anywhere in the world on a three-month contract. It's gonna take you that length of time to find somewhere to live. So it's no wonder they've had such a little response. In honest opinion, that is a pathetic offer. Three months is ridiculous. It needs to be more long-term to bring these people back to the UK to make them take a job as HTV an driver.
0: And as a professional in the industry, what chance is there of normality returning before Christmas, in your view? It's <laughs> do you know what that <laughs> <laughs> Just an easy normality. question for we... you, you know. Yeah,
4: we've not had normality for two years, have we, let's face it. But you know, that is down to you guys. In all honesty, that is down to you guys. We can work this, make this work with what we've got. It's how things are reported and how things are put out, how politicians make decisions and portray it to the public. That is what will make a a smooth run between now and Christmas. If there is... All this is rumours and malicious rumours and, and stuff put out all over the place. There will be absolute chaos, as we've seen over yep. the past few few weeks with the fuel shortage, and it can be quite easily avoided just by a little bit of sensible reporting. And that's not having to go at you guys for that. No, I get a different TV channel that I probably best
0: not mention. Chris, you know, so many people to me during that fuel madness did say it was the front pages of those newspapers on a Friday morning that caused it all, so the point you make is a valid one. Thank you once again for coming on. We'll speak to you again. Well, one person who is not going to be driving an HGV to help deal with the problems at Felix Dove is the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer. Because yesterday he got behind the wheel of an HGV in Greater Manchester, putting his driving skills to the test. And, yes, he crashed his lorry into a bollard. There's Sakir, looking all confident, wearing the kit, and it turned into a complete and utter disaster. He was there at Middleton, um, and I'm afraid it just all went wrong. Um, He lashed out at the government over a shortage of drivers, uh, but sadly proved his own incompetence. And if he's not able uh, to drive a lorry in public without crashing, many will ask, is he up to running the country. My favourite two people, Harry and Meghan, are now moving into the investment business. Oh, yes, and they've joined an ethical technology company. Well, yes, um, ethical are uh, a successful company, or they appear to be a successful company. The couple have gone into partnership with them, they've invested money with them, and the firm is pledged to support companies aligned with their values, yes. Well, ethic... Is an asset management business. Uh, They're focused on sustainable investments. Um, But we're told uh, that actually some of the big investments that this firm have made are in the big tech companies. They've got money invested in Twitter and they've got money invested also in Facebook. And if Harry and Meghan think by investing ethically that somehow that's going to bring them a return... They might be in for a nasty shock. My advice would be, don't buy shares, don't buy stock in anything that Sir Nick Clegg has got to do with. But we'll see how it works out. But maybe they should have taken some advice from Nancy Pelosi. Yep, the Speaker over there in Congress. Pelosi, who's been a member of the House of Representatives in Washington since 1987. Now, she and her husband, Paul, have done rather well, because their net assets, that she has to declare, in 2018, their net assets were $114 million. Their net assets in 2020, at the end of 2020, were $315 million. Yes, they've gone up by $200 million over the course of just three trading years. And it would appear that Nancy Pelosi... Is perhaps the best stock picker in the world. She clearly is a financial genius. In fact, she even exercised some options in Microsoft just, and that was last year. And she did it just two weeks before the US government got a massive contract given to Netflix from the US military, a contract worth 22 billion. And the Pelosi's had exercised options just two weeks before. Now, I'm sure. That's a complete and utter coincidence. I'm not making any allegations against Nancy Pelosi. I'm sure it's all pure coincidence and that she's just a complete genius. So maybe Harry and Meghan, she's the one to talk to. Can you imagine if anybody even closely related to Donald Trump had conducted a share transaction of that nature? You'd be seeing it all over the world. But because this is Democrats, no one says a thing. Well, here's a real What the Farage moment. The Rolling Stones have said they are dropping Brown Sugar, one of their biggest songs from their US tour. The band will no longer play the number one hit following concerns over references to slavery, rape and black girls. Veteran guitarist Keith Richard confirmed the decision to the LA Times but said he was confused by people who wanted to bury the track. He questioned whether people understood the song was about the horrors of slavery, and he hopes he'll be able to resurrect it somewhere along the line. And that's what happens. That's how cancel culture works. In fact, I think it's their second biggest song, their second biggest track the Rolling Stones ever made, but you get pressurised. You get 10,000 emails from some activist group, and then you're forced into backing down. It's how cancel culture works. It is corrosive. It is bad news. In a moment, somebody who cannot be cancelled from what he wants to say, because he always speaks his mind. No, in a moment, joining me. And it's not a Weatherspoon's, it's the GB News Pub, but Tim Martin will be here on Talking Pints in just a moment. Well, here we are. It's my favourite time of the day. The GB News pub is now officially open and I'm joined by somebody who has had a bit of a career in pubs. I'm joined by the one and only, probably the most ideal guest we could ever have on Talking Pints. Well, I'll say that now. Maybe not at the end, you never know. But Tim Martin, welcome. Very, very good to see you. Thanks, Nigel. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Now, it is an amazing story. You start off with one pub... In North London, in 1979, and now J.D. Weatherspoon's is 900 and... About 900. About 900. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and people know you as a publican, they know you as a public figure, they know you was a, a bit of a buccaneer, they know you as somebody that speaks his mind, and we'll talk about some of the battles that you fought with government, but the astonishing thing, what they don't know about you, is that you actually qualified as a barrister. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's what
1: went wrong? A, yeah. Well, I, I studied law at university and I didn't feel I was very good at it and other people could understand it more quickly than I could. So I chucked it in and got a job uh, selling advertising space for newspapers. But I thought, actually, the law seemed bad to me, but this was slightly worse. So I switched back to the law to, to do my bar exams yep. and scraped through... Uh, and then while I was actually studying the bar exams I went drinking in a pub a that had been converted from a bookmaker's in North London where I was living. And it was the fir- almost the first pub in the UK that wasn't a pub to start with. Someone got a license converted to a pub and I used to go there and the guy that ran it uh, set up a very good pub but he didn't like it so I took over his eight year lease of a place that's half the size of your studio. And it went from there, really, in the way so that
0: life did does. You, did you literally just jack into the law and say, right, I'm going to run this place, I, I'd or, already or try and do both? Yeah, or?
1: I, I'd already decided... So I did my exams, yep. scraped through, and I decided I was not going to become a barrister, a practising barrister, and uh, was running a pub. So I was actually called to the bar officially when I was running a pub. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you never really practised, then? No. No. Interesting, interesting. Well, I, I bet nobody watching this knew that you were a qualified barrister. Um, and running a pub... I mean, you said you were in the pub. I mean, is going to pubs, was going to pubs, is still going to pubs part of what you enjoy, really enjoy doing?
1: I, I'd always been a, a, a pub-goer, and I love to go to pubs, yes, so I almost never in my life... Uh, went home after working without going for a, a pint or two. that sort of guy, really. Yeah. So it's good. It is a genuinely a good background for the pub workers. quite a lot of people who are the directors of pub companies over the decades aren't really, really pub goers. So it does give you a, a bit of an advantage. So what makes a
0: good pub, Tim Martin?
1: Um, I think it's, uh, it's, I've often said for us, it's a thousand components of BMW. I have to think of a non-EU brand, <laughs> actually. But uh, it's, it's many, many different things. But uh, I think mo- if you ask most people, they would say atmosphere. Mm. But it's how you create it. But how you create a company like ours, I think, is... You have to find a way, and maybe Walmart in the area of of supermarkets and stores, and and Julian Richer, a smaller company, and hi-fi separates have done it. You have to absorb information almost on a weekly basis from the customers and the people who work in the pubs and have a system for gradually upgrading things as time goes on. So that's a listening
0: exercise, in a sense? Listen, yes. Because what's remarkable about the way you run or from what I can see, some of this business, and I've seen you do it, is you will turn up unannounced in a town or city and maybe there's two or three Wetherspoons in the locale and without any warning, without any head office tip, there are the guys and girls running the pub and in walks the big fella. I mean... (laughs) But do I they actually, all live in fear of yeah. Martin turning up? I, mean, I am
1: in disguise, though. Uh, but how, I, how, I can you, I, how can you be disguised? Short skirt, high heels. Yeah, I oh, don't believe
0: <laughs> it. I don't believe it.
1: But I try and spend, seriously, spend uh, two days a week calling on pubs, and I've done that from uh, from the day dot, and it's a vitally important thing to do. But it's because, random. It's random, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I'll get the train to uh, whatever part of the country... Yep. Yeah. And uh, uh, I've got some taxi firms around the place and I'll call, I try and call on seven or eight pubs day one, three or four day two. Yep. And walk into the pub, as you said. Yep. And uh, uh, just, I never give anyone a telling off, ever. And I just order a drink, uh, taste a couple of beers. Yep. Speak to the customers and write down uh, what I see. And I always try and say 50% of it is to introduce myself to the people who are working there and uh, say thanks for your hard work. And that quite, I think that quite
0: goes a long way. Yeah, I, I bet it, no, I bet it yeah, does. Yeah. And what if the beer's rubbish?
1: If the beer's rubbish, I'll go. Actually, I think there's a slight haze. Actually, there is on this one, actually, Nigel. What are you giving me here? There's a slight yeah. haze on this beer. Maybe the barrel's yeah. coming to an
0: end. Yeah, and then one of the regulars says, oh, it's bloody rubbish in here. We only come here because it's cheap. <laughs> well, you? I mean, what,
1: happened? <laughs> what happens then? Well, it's quite funny. I mean, you just write down what they say and say, well, you know, it shouldn't be. But we've got more pubs in the good beer Guide than any other company, and uh, the quality of the beer generally is regarded as, as good. We've got a lot of design. was so. People tend not to say that, but I have one. I've been to four pubs today, and a pub at a station in London. Someone said to me, "You're overcharging for your uh, uh, a shot of lemonade in Mm. my uh, Smirnoff vodka." Mm. So, uh, and I looked at it. I thought, "Well, it's just because it's divided between." vodka and lemonade on a random basis but actually the overall price is half what it is next door but um, my explanation fell on deaf ears.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so if I go to a spin's pub and order a pint of beer what am I going to pay on average?
1: Well it does vary between between big city centres yeah. but on average you pay about Twenty-five percent less than elsewhere. For real ale, yep. it's 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 a bit less than that. So it's, you pay you be rarely pay more than two pounds fifty, and you can usually get one for two quid.
0: Around the corner here, it's four fifty. Yeah, four seventy-five. Yeah. Now that's in London, but actually, throughout much of the southeast, that's pretty much what the price is. Yeah.
1: It's not very expensive in in the UK. I feel sorry for publicans, really, uh, in a way, because the tax system is uh, weighed against them. They pay 20% VAT on food sales, which is a big part of what (laughs) they do and supermarkets pay nothing so that enables supermarkets in effect to subsidize the beer prices that they sell at so publicans are under tremendous pressure yeah. we've been a successful company we've got bigger pubs over the years over 40 years we've been able to uh, become a bit more efficient here and there and uh, we, we we do charge we do charge less which which no-one's ever asked me to put the prices up. No, I'm sure they haven't.
0: <laughs> what about responsible drinking, Tim? I mean, you enjoy a beer, you know, I enjoy a beer. But what, how, how does a pub deal with problem drinkers?
1: It's very, very difficult. And uh, part of the whole pub industry's been round the houses on this mm, issue. I know. I think that um, if you... P- pubs, of course, charge quite a bit more, even spoon pubs than supermarkets. So the problem... If it's price, the problem drinker probably isn't going to pubs as much. The other thing I think we say as, a, as an industry is it's supervised, even these days, CCTVs, etc. Mm. But there's a licensee there whose responsibility it is uh, not to let people who are drunk drink there. But some people... Have a problem with uh, with drinking, but as you say, you and, can
0: buy it cheap in the supermarket yeah, and drink it at home. Yeah. So there's it's...
1: a limit, probably, to what you can do. Yeah. Sell coffee. One of the some of the things we've we've done over the years sell coffee and tea uh, uh, at a very reasonable price. You know, sell a range of soft drinks, uh, a large food offering. I think these things help. But if someone's really got a problem, mm. it may not help them.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I mean, that is difficult. And beer taxes. I mean, under George Osborne, they kept going up and up and up and up. Are uh, pubs now at an unfair disadvantage to the supermarkets?
1: I would say uh, we've, got, we've got the highest beer duty that I'm aware of yeah. in Europe, so pay a hell of a lot of duty. I think it's VAT and business rates which discriminate against pubs, which I don't think is in anyone's interest because uh, supermarkets n- normally operate on the edge of town. They've got some <coughs> small ones in towns these yeah. days. But there's a real problem with high streets. Politicians are sort of aware of this. If you want to revive the high streets, I think you have to have <coughs> equal taxes for pubs and supermarkets.
0: Equality, Nigel. Yeah, well, that's at- all the buzzword these days. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure very popular, you know. <laughs> yes. Tim, the lockdown, the pandemic... It's, and I know that you've had a you know, very successful business. Your figures for last year are pretty disastrous. Um, and you can't shy away from that. You're a public no, company no. and there's nowhere to hide. No. And you're, you're the guy at the top of it. Um, the pandemic's been, obviously been very bad news for you. You were very critical of much of lockdown policy. You made the point that rather than closing the places, you could have used social distancing, etc. But in a funny way... Given the size of your company, isn't this a chance for Weatherspoons to expand with so many other pubs going bust? Well, I
1: think it's been a very strange 18 months because almost nothing that was predicted 18 months ago or during the first lockdown, for example, has actually transpired. So even uh, the Office for National Statistics said there was going to be 10% unemployment and, yeah. it's, and loads, loads of companies were going bust, <laughs> etc. And it hasn't happened, which yeah. just goes to show how difficult it is to predict economics. Yeah. So it's uh, it, it's really right. re- almost impossible to uh, almost impossible to to say what's going to happen. But yeah, it's been it's been really difficult with massive losses. And I think the the, the point you made, the government has poured a tremendous amount of money into the economy. Yeah. And it hasn't all settled down yet. No-one quite knows where we're going to go. No.
0: I mean, it feels like we're going back to shades of the 1970s with inflation and all the rest of it. But as you say, nobody absolutely ever knows yeah. the future. Are you optimistic for the future of Weatherspoons from here?
1: I'm optimistic for the future of Weatherspoons. I think people will, will want to go out, and uh, uh, the pub and restaurant industry is a massive... A generator of jobs and taxes. Weatherspoon alone. This is a weird stat. Pays one pound in every thousand of all UK taxes. That's its customers, uh, beer duty, VAT, etc. One pound in in every uh, in every thousand. So it's an amazing stat. stat. That's a good stat. Optimistic for for the future. Yes, I think the big sword of Damocles over. Uh, the the economy at the moment is the fact there's a precedent being set for locking everything down. So it's never happened before. It wasn't contemplated before. The October 2019 pandemic Plans made in advance didn't contemplate lockdowns. Now they've done it, and I think what I saw in the paper today said, mm. "If only it had been done earlier." Yes. So I, <clears throat> I think the the big worry for the economy is: will they sp- lots, start spotting lots of pandemics? They say about or, economists flu, or that, flu or whatever. Yeah, it could, they, yeah, exactly. They say that economists have predicted. Uh, 20 of the last 3 is that of the way it goes uh, <laughs> recessions and uh, you know if we get a, yeah. if we get a mystic meg working for sage now who starts predicting out pandemics down the line and they start closing the economy down at the drop of a hat yeah. i think there's there's great great problems ahead all these but i'm optimistic overall we got we live in a yeah. democracy
0: Yep. And, uh,
1: yeah. you know. Well,
0: and an independent democracy. Exactly. And you really, I mean, very rare that a businessman does what you did. You put yourself absolutely out there in the Brexit campaign. You travelled the country. You spoke at rallies. You appeared on radio and tele. And you really believed in it, didn't you? Well, it's
1: a funny thing because I wasn't really a sort of UKIP guy or, or a political guy. But. Uh, 30 years ago, we joined the exchange rate mechanism. I well remember. And my mortgage jumped up, put the business in jeopardy. Even Barclays was in trouble even then. And then it was suggested 10 years later we would join the euro, which was the successor to the failed exchange rate mechanism. So it was only then that I campaigned and I sort of got uh, shot up into the, into the spotlights on Panorama and Question Time. But once that yeah. campaign was won, I disappeared again. So I, I didn't even know that, that UKIP had won the 2014 or fifteen election, yeah. or I wasn't alert to this thing. But what, what made me join the, uh, the, the Brexit campaign, yeah. I decided, along with a couple of people I knew, that we had to wait and see what... David Cameron brought back from Brussels. He said it needed fundamental reform. And a lot of us agreed with that. And it was only when he came back and said he'd got it (laughs) that a lot of (laughs) semi-neutrals like me said, come on. And then once you start arguing, you know, so it was at that point. But because I was speaking out, I don't know, I'd done it for the euro 20 years before. Because I was speaking out, um, it, uh, once again, it was our yeah, confidence
0: well, to get... Yeah, <laughs> and, and they loved you, the cartoonists and the satirists and all the rest of it, but you're pleased you did it.
1: I, I, I'm very pleased I did it. I mean, I think democracy is essential. This is my base point for the yeah. future of the world, not just for the UK or the good of the UK. I think it's essential for Europe, it's essential for China. Yeah. And if if you have a situation in a country where people all vote... By and large, you will avoid war. By and large, not all war, but you will not... It's, it's, it's dictators who
0: cause yeah. wars. And, of course, that in a nuclear age is the big danger. You see, Tim Martin proving my point, that every pub is a parliament. That was Tim Martin. <laughs> It's the last part of the show. It is Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions and I do not get previous side of them. Here goes tonight. Dave starts off. If you were David Frost, would you be prepared to compromise with the EU on the protocol? And what would be the red line? Has to be the European Court of Justice. It absolutely has to be the European Court of Justice. Brexit was about, you know, getting away from foreign laws, controlling our borders and not having a foreign court, an EU court, to have jurisdiction. And that's why... The EU may have given a bit tonight, but they have not given enough. Jan and Derek on email asks me, in your opinion, would it have been better to come out on WTO rules or would that have exacerbated the Northern Ireland situation? Do you know, the one part of the economy where there is no deal at all is financial services. And guess what? All the figures show... That for the City of London and the banking sector, we're doing more European business now than we were at any point before the Brexit vote. And European money is now pouring into the City of London. Frankly, WTO rules would have been better than this botched Brexit deal. We've got what we've got, and at least we've got Brexit. Mannix says to me, are you against the idea of working from home? Yes, I'm not against it. But don't tell me that people's productivity goes up working from home. It is complete and utter baloney. What do you make of that, Tim, working from home?
1: I do a bit of it myself. I think a mix is OK, but, yeah, switching to everyone working from home will be
0: uh, unproductive in the long run. Unnatural, too. Yeah, and where's the fun of it, and where's the camaraderie? And also, you know, after work, you want to go to a Wetherspoons for a pint, you see, so there we are. I mean, it's job done, isn't it? Last one I'm going to do. Philip says, should we cut Northern Ireland loose and allow a unification of Ireland? No, we believe in consent. That's what the Belfast Agreement was all about.